So I normally like to go to my local grocery store every few days, pop in, get a few items, pop out. But lately, I've been seeing these crazy photos on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook of my grocery store, and it's bare shelves. I'm in straight-up bunker mode. I'm working my way through my cans of beans, but I'm also wondering, what's going on here? So I called someone. I got hundreds of emails yesterday saying, you're completely wrong, everything is fine where I am, and other people corroborating that there are decimated shelves, whether it's cat food or paper goods or milk or the dreaded cream cheese. That's Laura Riley. She covers the business of food for The Post. Some of it is you go to a grocery store, you see an empty shelf, and you say to yourself, other people know something that I don't know, and I better start stockpiling. (laughs) You know, that was the, like, we're all still working off that toilet paper from last year. But, you know, it, it comes down to kind of irrational, paranoid psychology. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Wednesday, January 12th. Today, our grocery store shelves are empty. Again. Plus, why so many people have put off having a kid. I'm in D.C., and I foolishly went to the grocery store the night before a big winter storm. Is one reason weather... Absolutely. So that psychology factors into weather too, right? So before a storm, everyone's like, I need milk, I need bread, I need to lay in supplies. I think we all have this kind of primordial caveman impulse to lay in supplies when the weather's going to be bad. But then in addition to that, we all saw those pictures. There were you know, mid-Atlantic storms, there were Pacific Northwest storms. We saw those pictures on I-95 of all of those miles and miles of cars stopped And some of those trucks that were stopped were tractor trailers taking stuff to the grocery store. Yeah, and the Mid-Atlantic isn't the only region facing shortages. What else is causing bare shelves right now? Well, one thing we're hearing a lot about with the CPI numbers coming out in terms of inflation. So when things get expensive, when food service gets expensive, People say, you know what, restaurants, I'm just going to think of it as more of a splurge and not like it's Tuesday and there's nothing in my vegetable crisper. So we started to see people in December turn away from food service again, partly because of those inflationary numbers and partly because of Omicron. So people who are maybe immunocompromised or just a little bit skittish, the Omicron numbers started rising and people said to themselves once again, You know, I'm not going to go to a restaurant unless it can be outside. And as we know, a lot of parts of the country, you can't be outside right now at a restaurant. So December, we saw a huge uptick in grocery purchasing. You know, there always is because of the holidays. But we saw 8% surge in total grocery sales in December relative to last year. So grocery stores were already on January 1 operating from a position of having to desperately restock, you know, that sales were significantly better than anyone anticipated for December. And some of that is also because, you know, if you're not going to that Broadway show, you're not taking that weekend trip to Boston or whatever, maybe you're going to treat yourself and you're going to buy some food that's a little more expensive. You're going to do something a little jazzier for Christmas Eve and, you know, it's lobster night, everybody. So some of that experience <laughs> explains why there might have been a little bit of splurginess this holiday season that played out at the grocery store. 
What else can you tell us about how Omicron is causing grocery shortages, especially, you know, we think about frontline workers. What is it meant for the people working in these stores and, and how is that impacting or not these shortages? It's a significant impact. So I talked to CEOs for some of the consumer packaged goods companies and grocery store chains, and they said they were anywhere down between 10% and 50% of their staffing. Some of this is the great resignation. Some of this is that they started pre-Omicron, started with a desperate need for workers, whether that's, you know, trucking or grocery or manufacturing, that everyone has been looking for workers and doing whatever they have to do to get them and retain them. But then you had the Omicron surge. And as we know, the death numbers are not terrible, given the sheer volume of people who've contracted it in recent weeks. But it's so contagious that people are stepping out of the workplace. And then if you also make it really hard for people to get tested, either, you know, rapid home tests or urgent care places with long lines, it's even harder to get those workers back in swiftly. So you have all of the restocking and shelving and cleaning and those kinds of things at grocery stores. There just aren't enough people to do it right now. And Omicron has one other effect that has just really started to manifest in the past 11 days. A lot of schools that were scheduled to go back in session last week have postponed or have considered going back to a remote uh, learning environment. And so you have all of those thousands and thousands of kids who are, are you know, uh, home with parents. And that puts an extra burden to feed every single meal to those kids that a lot of parents didn't anticipate. Should we expect to experience these kinds of shortages more frequently? Well, yeah, I think that what we've seen in the past 20 months is the interconnectedness and global nature of our food supply. So there was so much written about the shipping issues three or four months ago in the huge spike in the cost of shipping containers. So that is still the case. We still are having a hard time getting ingredients and foodstuffs from Asia and the UK. But now we also have those parts of the world dealing with their own Omicron surge, and they're dealing with it in different ways. I mean, we have a kind of a zero COVID policy right now in China that is impacting the production of some goods there. So it's not just the shipping, it's also the manufacturing. And then we have shortages that, you know, predated Omicron, but are significant. So cans, there are fewer, way fewer cans than we need for the world plastics, corrugated cardboard. We've, you know, seen this huge surge in e-commerce, which has impacted the demand for cardboard. And so sometimes there are shortfalls in things at the grocery store. And it's not that we can't get the food itself. It's that there are not cardboard boxes to put it in and ship it in. In your reporting and monitoring all of this, are you seeing people and companies rethink our relationship to food and how we deliver food and what food we're consuming because of all of these issues? Sure. I think that this puts people back into buying shelf-stable food. From a consumer standpoint, we're seeing another surge in canned goods, in dried beans and rice and things that can sit for a long time in your refrigerator or in your shelves without going bad. From a production perspective, we're seeing a lot of interest and a lot of kind of food tech dollars and, and venture capital dollars going into more urban agriculture things so that you don't have these huge distances that food has to travel. And, you know, the, all the snarls that can happen when a food product travels 3,000 miles, those are significant. If a food product has to travel two miles, 
you know, there's a lot less that can go wrong. So we're seeing a lot of interest in kind of re-upping our commitment to urban ag and indoor vertical farming and those kinds of things because of the pandemic. But I also think some of it is we're, we're keenly aware now of all of this interconnectedness. So I think from a consumer standpoint, I mean, my gosh, like two years ago, if I had said supply chain disruption to the average person, they would have said, you know, what What do you even mean by that? And now it's it's common parlance. Pretty sure I overheard someone say <laughs> supply chain issues in the grocery store line. So it's made it yeah, to the mainstream. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, and some of that hopefully will make us all a little more patient when we encounter these problems, whether that's in food service, you know, what do you mean my favorite entree is not available? Or at the grocery store when you see out of stocks or long lines that that will have a little bit more common humility that we recognize what's going on in a way that we might not have um, two years ago. Yeah. And maybe even a small manifestation of that is maybe I won't get my favorite fruit now because it's winter and it's not the season. I think, do you think we've just maybe become too accustomed to getting whatever we want whenever we want it? And this moment is showing that, you know, that's not always going to be the case. Yeah, I think there is some of that. I mean, I think that the kind of locavore movement lost a little momentum some years back because people have this irrational desire to eat local, but also to have blueberries, you know, 12 months out of the year. And those two things cannot coexist. And so I think it is causing a little bit more introspection about what our values are in terms of the food we eat. And and that seasonality, if you really want to kind of minimize those food miles, you have to embrace seasonality a little bit more, um, you know, with your whole heart. Laura, when you look at grocery store shortages, bare shelves, what is the most fascinating element of this to you? Like, why does this story captivate you? Well, it's it's so nuanced. I mean, there are things that are that are, you know, it's a little inside baseball. But if you go to the grocery store and you do a bigger shop, you know, you buy $300 worth of groceries versus pre-pandemic, you know, $50 worth of groceries, it makes it much harder for that store to plan. You know, so you see these huge ricochets between having too much of something and then not enough of something. And some of it is about how we're shopping. And then the the, the rise of e-commerce has changed what brick and mortars, um, how well they can plan. And, you know, for a lot of retailers now, they're moving away from this just in time. You know, like historically, they want to have just enough in the store to be opulent and, you know, filled and and you know gorgeous looking but not so much that things go bad and i think that they're they're rethinking that because a lot of companies are like you know well we don't know when we're going to be able to get this thing again so you're seeing stockpiling on the manufacturing side on the grocery side and obviously you know in our homes so you know that'll all get worked out once we all have greater confidence but then you have this inflation piece of it too and we'll see how that plays out in this this next uh, you know 11 months yeah it sounds like so much of it is difficulty and planning for the future even with something as basic as what we eat every day yeah. I mean, when have we ever thought so much about it? I mean, some of it is that we're, we've been, a lot for a lot of us, we've been trapped at home and food is one of our great joys or one of our <laughs> few remaining joys. So I do think there's been a lot more thought about how we eat, what we eat, when we eat, what we eat. Um, so I, I think that, uh, at least from my perspective, it's brought everyone into where I am. <laughs> mm, yeah. 
After the break, why the pandemic caused a dip in the U.S. birth rate. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. I'm Kat Athanasiades. I'm 38 years old, and I live in the Columbia Heights neighborhood of Washington, D.C. I'm Rajan Kapoor. I am Kat's husband. And we have a family of three right now, and our daughter, Tala, is three years old. Kat and Rajan were considering having another child back in 2020. Then, COVID hit. All of a sudden, they were working at home. They suddenly had their 18-month-old at home with no childcare. Their nanny was on furlough. Their nanny share had been suspended. And their regular network of support was gone for the time being. Tara Bahrampour covers demographics for The Post. She says during the early days of the pandemic, Rajan and Kat began reconsidering whether or not they wanted to have another child. She was putting her daughter to bed one night and she just said, you know, I don't think we can do this. I can't have another one right now. There's too much uncertainty and I don't know what our future is going to look like. Turns out this couple isn't alone in grappling with this kind of a decision. The state of births has been going down in the United States quite precipitously for the last few years, especially since the Great Recession. But in the past year, there was really a big dip that corresponded with the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. How would you describe or call this moment? I mean, we have like the great resignation, baby booms. What Would you call this a baby bust? It's a little baby bust because the births that were anticipated, you know, even kind of within the demographic estimates that were going on, even though overall the country was going down, there wasn't expected to be this kind of big dip. And what we ended up with... Uh, the researchers are calling 60,000 missing births because the ones that were expected didn't happen. And even after the numbers leveled off back to the expectations, there was no compensation. It wasn't like there were a whole bunch more births to make up for the missing ones. So we could call it a COVID baby bust. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about why this happened. March, April, beginning of the pandemic, I'm trying to channel back what it felt like to be in that moment. What we're talking about is really personal questions. Like, it's a very personal thing to decide whether to have a baby or not. But what is happening and what happened on a macro level? So large scale, everybody who could be was home. And so there are a lot of people who may have been planning to get pregnant who had jobs, who had daycare for their older children. So suddenly they're home, possibly with their kids, trying to homeschool or virtual school with their kids at home while they're starting trying to do their jobs. And nobody was used to this. So there was this incredible stress 
for people thinking like, oh, I still have to be the same employee that I've been, but I also have to be making sure that my kids are now doing their online schooling, or I don't have my nanny anymore, or I don't have my social network. All of a sudden, everything's shut down. Relatives that you might have relied on or friends that you might have had shares with, all of that shut down. And people had not figured out workarounds yet. So there was this really stressful couple of months there where people were just sort of caught flat-footed. Yeah, and we're also talking about perhaps a certain class of people who had the option to work from home, as difficult as that is when dealing with childcare. The researchers you, you spoke to or the people you interviewed, did they talk about that? Like, what about people who never stopped reporting in person for work, the essential workers? That's true. And again, they didn't have a breakdown of what kinds of workers, but they did find that the biggest declines were among more highly educated women. So those might correlate with people who were able to work from home or had more flexibility. And then again, older women, relatively older women. But then the other interesting drop that they saw was among teens. That would be the second biggest drop is among teens. And that was sort of interesting because they said separation from peers likely reduced their opportunities for sexual encounters. Basically, they just couldn't get pregnant. When you looked across the country, how did this decline differ state to state based on whatever the situation was regarding the economy and COVID in those states? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because it did vary across states. Overall, it was 3.7% down across all states. But in states like New York and Massachusetts and New Hampshire and Delaware, it was a lot sharper, including New York City, which we all know was the epicenter of the COVID epidemic at that moment. You know, in March, April of 2020, they were just having devastating numbers of people being hospitalized and sick. And the rate there declined 23.4%, according to these estimates, wow. which is just incredible. And when I asked them about that, I said, well, isn't it true that a lot of residents of New York City left New York and maybe their births weren't counted? And he said, no, we were counting people who consider themselves to be residents of New York City, whether or not they had left town or not. You know, during the pandemic, in my life, a lot of my friends became first-time parents. And I'm wondering in the data you looked at, was it people who already had kids and were trying to get through this period of time, were they the ones not having the children that demographers expected them to have? That is a big part of it. The biggest declines were among women who already had at least one child. So I think you could say, yes, they knew what they were getting into. Maybe the first-time parents didn't. And, you know, if you had friends who had a baby in January of 2021, then they were bucking the trend, or at least not falling into this particular trend. So there was more optimism later in 2020. And so by February of 2021, the birth rate had bounced back. And in June of 2021, there was even a little bit of a spike, which suggests that by the end of the summer, by September of 2020, people were feeling more optimistic. Maybe they were hearing about the vaccines on the horizon, or they'd had a summer, so the coronavirus sort of gets a little bit better in the summers. We may see more spikes where now that we've had Delta and now we're having Omicron, there may be little baby busts coming up nine months later. It's just a little bit early to know that yet. We've talked about people who are not having kids. Did, did you speak with someone who had considered having a child 
around the pandemic before it began? Yes, I talked with someone who was planning to get pregnant right around then because they wanted to have a baby about two years after their first baby. So they already had a toddler. We had originally decided to have another kid and we were aiming for when Tala was like somewhere between two and two and a half, which would have meant that I would have gotten pregnant early in the pandemic, like April-ish, (laughs) May-ish of 2020. When everything shut down, suddenly the couple was home dealing with their very active 18-month-old and not having the nanny and not having any of the support systems that they used to have. And they just, one day the mother was putting the daughter to bed and just said, you know, I don't know if we can do this. I don't know if we can do this right now. It's just a really uncertain time. Did their conversations around this evolve as the pandemic progressed? They did. What happened was they decided to put it off initially And then as the pandemic progressed, she said she found a new network. We became really close with a number of our neighbors who all just happened to have kids around the same age. And so just developing a new support network and a new group of folks who we know could realistically, physically be there for us also just made it seem a lot more manageable and a lot more like something that we could imagine getting ourselves into. And she realized that there was enough of a new support system to try to start thinking about getting pregnant again. And the couple you spoke with and the family you spoke with, as difficult as the situation was for them, they found support systems along the way. They got vaccinated. They turned to their community. What about people who didn't find all of that or for their socioeconomic situation that that those things were not available to them in the same way? The researchers did not get that into the details of what people's specific situations were, but they were able to look overall. And some of the trends they saw were in places where there were larger spikes in unemployment or more COVID cases per capita, there were more decreases. So it seems that people who were either having hardships or considered that they might have hardships were slowing it down. But I think to your question of, you know, do people who have fewer resources also decide to have fewer children? I don't think you can necessarily make that correlation because so much goes into the decision to have a child or get pregnant. And for a lot of women, it's not, it's not as easy to make that choice. They don't have as much autonomy in making that choice. They may not have the kind of access to birth control that more affluent women or more educated women have. And so when I see these declines highest among highly educated women or highest among older women, I think you might be able to make that correlation, even though they didn't specifically ask those questions in the research. Is is a baby dip and a baby bump one way to measure how positive the outlook is for the future on, on a mass global population scale? 
the professor of economics I spoke to, who was a co-author on this report, Philip Levine, he said, uncertainty is not good for fertility. People want to bring a baby into a secure world. They want to know that the baby is going to be safe. And in times such as war, for example, the fertility rate goes down because people suddenly feel like they don't know what they're getting into and what they're going to bring this child into. But this overall decline in births in this country, why why does that matter? What does that mean for the makeup of our country and its future? Some people argue that it's good and that there are too many people in the world. And that may be in terms of things like environmental impact and all of that. But for a country to have a slowing birth rate, it means that you're going to have more and more older people. You're going to have more and more people who are not in the labor force and who need taken care of and fewer and fewer people to take care of them. And so a country does need a certain infusion of young, robust people in order to really function in the way that we understand functioning. So what ended up happening with Kat and her partner? What did they end up deciding? Well, after getting vaccinated and a pretty optimistic looking few months there in spring and summer, She got her IUD removed, and she is now seven months pregnant. We don't know if it's a boy or a girl. We are not finding out. I got pregnant very quickly, quicker than we had expected. But that was also, you know, fantastic. Tara Bahrampour covers demographics for The Post. This story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sam Baer and edited by Maggie Penman and Ariel Plotnik. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.